Welcome to Japanimation Station, an anime podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wild and wacky world of anime. And we are continuing our Thanksgiving treat here. Um, We're getting into our leftovers now. We're having that nice, you know, that turkey sandwich um, the day afterwards. Uh, It is just (laughs) uh, Thanksgiving extravaganza here for our fourth and final special Thanksgiving podcast. And today is Thanksgiving. Today is November 23rd. It is Sean's birthday. It is the anniversary of Doctor Who. It is the anniversary of John F. Kennedy being killed in Dallas. And it is the 10th anniversary of Persona 3, the movie number one, which is why we are doing this this week. Um, The Persona 3 video game is one of our favorites. The movies are a real masterpiece of adaptation. They are the best, like, anime made uh, from a video game, depending on how you count Fate Stay Night. That's where it gets tricky. Uh-huh. Is Fate Stay Night a video game? Then that is the competition. But that's that's pretty much it, right, Sean? <laughs> yes, yeah. If you're going non-visual novel video game, then for sure. Yes, I guess, because then, yeah, I guess you would get Clannad and all sorts of things. Um, but yeah, uh, if you separate out visual novels and video games, then Persona 3 kind of sits at the top of that pile because of these uh, extraordinary films. We've been re-releasing these old episodes where we reviewed them. We are talking today about the final film, Persona 3, the movie number four, Winter of Rebirth. This was originally recorded August 21st, 2016. Uh, and this one is uh, the first one recorded on the kinds of mics we use now. So it sounds a little better than the last three. I still did some remastering on the audio, a little less aggressive um, because the audio did sound better on this one. If you're wondering, when does Sean start to sound like the Sean we all know and love now? It's this episode. You sound like yourself, or at least the self that I know now. Um, and this one also, I was very amused to go back And the beginning of this podcast is you and I kind of barely able to talk because the movie had like shook us so much because Uh Persona 3, the movie, obviously the end of Persona 3, the game is great. And the way they render it in the movie is so extraordinarily powerful. We were both a little bit lost for words at the beginning of this one, which I think makes it a really interesting podcast. Yes, because we, for all of these, we watched the movie together and then recorded the podcast, not our kind of normal uh podcast yeah. setup because normally we each watch whatever we're doing independently um and have a little bit of extra time but the nature of these 
um, sort of pretty difficult at the time to see movies, especially if you wanted to get them as soon as you could. Um, you ordered the uh, incredibly expensive Blu-rays to bring them over here, um, so we had to watch them together. So yes, it is just definitely a, a different kind of podcast conversation because of that. I remember distinctly, this one was recorded in your parents' kitchen because they were out of town yes. when we recorded this one. And so we were not in your basement. We were in your kitchen, um, which is connected to your parents. You, no one lives in that house. I'm sure someone lives in that house now. Your family doesn't. Um, yes. Presumably, and, presumably there's been, there are people living in there. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't yeah. talked to them, but <laughs> hopefully they're still alive and in that house. Hopefully. Uh, or someone someone else. But anyway, uh, but that was connected to your sort of living room where we watched this because I think your parents had like a bigger TV up there. And we were like, we want to yes. see this on the biggest one possible. Very worth it. This film this film is uh, is in my top 100 films of all time that I made a couple years ago and that is in my, my book, 200 Reviews. Uh, there's a listing at the end and I put this film in there. I think it is an extraordinary work of art, as are all four of these films, obviously. But this is why we wanted to bring these back for the 10th anniversary. They are worth talking about. Absolutely. They are incredible films. Um, I'm very happy, Jonathan, that you thought to to re-release these. Um, I think this is a fun time of year, particularly thinking about the content of, of movie number four. It does feel like a very appropriate movie for what we think of like the the spirit of the holidays in some ways and what that should mean in terms of how you think on your life. Um, and and the, this movie definitely has some pretty heavy themes that I think are very powerful. And even just thinking about the movie right now, I haven't seen it. I think this is the only one I think I've only ever seen once. All the other ones I had rewatched before we had done the fourth one. Um, it, is, it is now time has crept up on me and has been a weirdly long amount of time since I've seen these movies. So maybe I too shall take some time this Thanksgiving and go back and revisit these films because they are very much worth it. Absolutely. Well, uh, happy Thanksgiving, one and all. Happy birthday, Sean. And uh, let's talk some Persona. Yes. So enjoy Persona 3, the movie, number four, The Winter of Rebirth. Thanks for listening to Japanimation Station. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to like and subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and tell your friends. You can support the show directly on Ko-Fi at the link in the description. And remember to check out the Weekly Stuff podcast, our long-running series on movies and video games and everything else on all platforms. And now, back to the show. So we last week got in the final film, Persona 3 the movie, number four, Winter of Rebirth. And I just watched it. Yeah, yeah. And if we both sound a little um, winded at the moment, there's a reason. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, uh, it's sort of an intense movie, I would say. That's one way to put it. And I think it's a little bittersweet for us because I was just looking at the episode numbers. And we have been pretty regularly getting to do episodes on Persona 3 since uh, 2013 is when we yeah, did our first geez. one. And this is the last time for the foreseeable future we're going to have, you know, an extended topic on this particular story. And that's just a little bittersweet. Yeah, no, until they make Persona 3-2. Exactly. Any day so, now. 
where they all become idols. <laughs> exactly, yes. It's all about the dress fears. It's very important. I mean, Sean, do you want to give a little recap on just sort of what our evolving thoughts have been on this film franchise? Yeah, so, I mean, so basically we both came into the idea of these Persona 3 movie adaptations, I think, on the same foot of, like, hoping that they are be going to be good, expecting to enjoy them, but not expecting them to be amazing, because Persona 3 is, like, a 70 to 90 hour long RPG. It has a huge story with a huge cast of characters, and it has a massive amount of sort of emotional weight to it because it's a story that is very specifically thematically concerned with the concept of death and with adolescence and sort of like that growing up realization of that you're going to die, that the people you know are going to die, and that realization that loss is a factor in your life and you're going to have to face up to that. And that's So it's just like really heady emotional material and the game does a great job of dissecting it because it's so long, it can attack that topic from so many angles. So I think we both thought... Well, the movies will probably be good, the people working on it is good, but they're probably not going to be amazing because it's just too hard of a thing to adapt. Then the first movie comes out, and it's really good. Like, it's a... It, the, the, the way that they sort of adapt the material is fantastic. The way they made uh, Yuki Makoto, the main character from Persona 3, give him that name, and then make him a character, and they give him a role in the story that is previously just sort of occupied by you, the, the person playing the game, because Yuki Makoto is more of a sort of void for you to sort of put a character into as the player. And they do so much to make him a character. The movies have great music. The direction is fantastic. The animation is unbelievable. And then movie two comes out, and it's even better than that. And it, it tackles the, the topics that are more directly related to the sort of the death issue. And it gets very dark and very dramatic. And they sort of tackle that material with like, gusto and even sometimes improve on things with the game. Then movie 3 comes out, and then movie 3 deals with a section of the game that is one of the weaker story parts of the game. And movie 3 actually like improves upon a lot of that stuff. It makes the character Roji, who's a sort of more minor character, who's very important in a plot way, but doesn't have a lot of character in the game. They turn him and his relationship with the main character into a very important, interesting relationship. And a lot of it is material that is not directly adapted from the game but is more a spiritual adaptation of what the game is trying to convey and then now we're finally here at movie number four which is the big conclusion and if you thought that they were going to somehow fall on their face at this point you're mistaken because holy shit they knock it out of the park and the progress of these movies is that they get dramatically better basically with each one and they started very good and even saying that though like i didn't think they were going to fall on their face or anything with this last one I still wasn't expecting what we just watched. Yeah, no. I was in no way expecting, I think, for it to be quite as impactful, quite as artistic and beautiful. This fourth movie really could have... I was kind of expecting, honestly, in my mind, that the fourth movie would be a very long-form adaptation of, like, the last few hours of the game. Right. And it would be very action-heavy. It would be very, you know, movement-focused, all of this stuff. And I thought that would be good, but I was kind of thinking, we've probably seen the best these films have to offer in terms of kind of adding to the story already. Yeah. And I was so wrong on that because this fourth movie is sort of this little tone poem. Uh-huh. It is very, very intimate for the vast majority of its runtime. It is very thoughtful. It really becomes what I'd always kind of thought these movies were as much a sort of essay and commentary on the on the on like what is in those games as it is an adaptation yeah. where it's really, I think, you can absolutely, and I will now say this, you can watch these without playing the game, and I think you will get a significant experience. But if you have played the game, I think they draw your attention to certain things and make you rethink 
things you've already experienced with these games in a way that is so profound and feels like it is actively adding something to your appreciation of this great work of art while becoming a great work of art in its own way. Yeah. And so it's a long way of saying, you know, with all four done on our shelves, in our possession, we've seen them all, the full six and a half hour maybe project, this is not necessarily better than the game, but it stands up there kind of on a similar level. Yeah. And that is something we absolutely could not have expected going into this. Yeah, like especially the idea of like... Being, of being able to go up to someone and say, and know, like, hey, you know, maybe you're not that interested in playing this game, maybe you don't like JRPGs or whatever, but you can watch these movies, and like like you said, it's not necessarily a way to replace playing the game, but it, it it's so good, and you can go into it without knowing all the information you have from the games and get a valuable, interesting experience from them, because they are great films, and they tackled the material from the game from a different angle that makes it so you don't need all the information that the game provides you to understand what these movies are doing and why they're doing them well. Absolutely. I mean, I was thinking this throughout this film. This is the first one we've actually gotten to watch in the year of its original Japanese release. Right. Um, because usually the, the, the home video versions have come out, you know, in the next calendar year. And so this is the first one that would be eligible for me when I'm making like my movie top 10 list at the end of the year. This would uncontestedly be number one at the moment. Jeez, yeah. Like, yeah. uncontestedly. I mean, obviously for me, but I don't watch nearly <laughs> as many movies as you do, though. Yeah, and, theater. and I'll say, I, I, you know, I have a backlog this year. I haven't watched as many films as normal, but I couldn't even imagine what could be better, because you're taking the best part of my favorite game ever and doing it in such a way that it hits me in a very similar fashion. Yeah. And, yeah, if you go back and listen to episode 60, this is the one where I cried on the podcast. Yeah. So... Yeah, this game leaves me pretty... This story leaves me pretty raw. And this film brought a lot of that back in ways that I was sort of bracing myself for, but ready also to feel like maybe it's going to feel diluted. It didn't feel diluted. It felt different yeah. in some ways. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I wouldn't say diluted. Yeah, no, and, and, and I also think it's... it's One of the things I really like that the movie does is that it's not... Uh, it's not, like, sort of gray all throughout, you know? Like, it's not just that same tone of, like... It definitely is a very dark film. There's no fucking doubt about that. But, like with the game, it manages to sort of have a very diverse tone, and it has lighter moments and happy moments and sad moments and funny moments and, and dark moments and light moments, and it's able to string all those together. And that's maybe the thing I'm most impressed by, and it's where their ability to sort of take the spirit of what the game is doing but not literally doing the same thing uh, comes to its sort of greatest strength because if you were just trying to do the sort of spark notes version of the game of like this 20 hour section of the end of the game that's the December to January section and you just sort of like tried to cut all the important plot stuff out it would just be a dark movie that's just dark 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 and then has like this really beautiful poetic ending but it would just be dark throughout and they managed to take that and sort of extract what's important for, like, the, the darkness that the characters are into and have those character moments, but are managed to sort of take other things and adapt them and put them here and then just come up with scenes of their own that lighten up the tone and change the tone and keep it uh, diverse and sort of mobile. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's why we're feeling a little winded today. Yeah, it's a really great movie. If we don't... 
the other thing, like, when we do watch really great movies and talk about them on this podcast, usually we don't do it right after we just watch the fucking movie. So, so we're, like, unpacking this thing as we're talking about it right now. Which I think is actually part of the appeal of these episodes yeah. for us and hopefully for our listeners. Is it's, a, it's a unique way of doing it. It's a story we're already pretty intimately familiar with. And so getting to do this kind of on the fly and just have it be our fresh conversation. Yeah. Is a, it's also special just because, you know, normally we also don't review a movie right from a home video release. Right, yeah. But unless we were to fly to Japan, we're not going to see these in theaters. Yeah, we, the, our podcast doesn't have that kind of budget. Yeah. I actually want to address something up front regarding that um, for people who might be interested in these films. You know, we're reviewing these imported releases they are for an international audience in that they've added subtitles to it and a little English translation booklet that it translates all the stuff in the packaging. But they are imports. These are not a domestic release by any means. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out, do you think there's any chance these are going to get a, a real release in the United States? I think so. Anaplex, who does these, like they have... They, they release stuff over here pretty regularly. Like, I don't know, like, the pricing on them is probably still going to be fairly expensive. But if you want to watch Persona, the movie number two, it is still available on Netflix. Well, and that's... As of yesterday. For whatever reason, it's only that one. They never put the first one up, nor the third one. But. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder. I think they're going to get some kind of release here. I very much doubt we're ever going to get a dub of this. No, I don't think so. Because, and you know, Persona 4, the animation, got a dub. But that was also done basically concurrently with the Golden... Yeah. Um, the, the video game remake so they had to get the cast back together and do their recastings and so they were all together at the same time they were able to just kind of keep that train rolling through that Yeah. but I think it would be very I mean that dub is 10 years old now it would be tough probably to get the whole band back together especially when it includes people like uh, Vic Mignona who are pretty big yeah. and, and might be tough to get on a certain kind of budget although it is important to remember like they have come back for Persona 4 Arena and Arena okay. 2 so like they, like they didn't do dramatic recastings other than Fuka for those games okay good and point Ken is Voiced by another person, but that's because Ken's older. Yeah, had not thought about that. Yeah, so like, so it's it is theoretically possible that this that these movies might get a dub, but but it is also for whatever reason I think that, like animated films, unless it's like a Ghibli thing, don't get a lot of attention over here. Like, and I mean, even in the modern era of streaming anime and stuff like that, like Crunchyroll has a couple of movies, but not a lot. Netflix has a couple of movies, but not a lot. It's TV Hulu has a couple of movies. Yeah, it's mostly taking anime television series and streaming them over here and for whatever reason the movies don't get as much attention yeah the only way I can see these getting a dub is if a bigger company get their hands on them like Viz or Funimation right um and that, I mean, that's never happened with Persona in the past, so that would be kind of unlikely. Aniplex is being kind of erratic these days. I don't know if you saw, it's kind of a big news story. Funimation lost the license to Full Metal Alchemist. Oh, I didn't Did see you know that? Because no. Aniplex just pulled it. They've refused to renew the contract. So oh. Full Metal Alchemist is out of print in the States. I think they pulled it off Netflix. It's just gone for the moment, which is, I, I own them all, so I'm okay. But like that's kind of sad because that's a great series and a great right. dub and stuff. Um, and, the, and Anaplex owns that too. And then with having one of the Persona movies on Netflix, but not even it's not even the first one; it's the second yeah, it's the one. Second one. I don't. I, so I don't quite know what Aniplex is thinking with all this. I would say I hope they get some kind of either streaming or physical release out there. Maybe just a nice little box set with all four for people. Because that's the other thing is if you missed these while they were coming out, the import releases are basically they did one print run for every one of them. Yeah. And the first three at least are all out of print at this point. So you can probably find them. You know, you can find them illicitly, of course. Yeah. That's the, but, if you really want to watch these movies, there's nothing stopping you. Right. But just for those who are maybe wondering, I didn't want to pay $80 per Blu-ray, but yeah, I would love yeah. a, a some kind of release 
I hope it happens, and with Persona 5 having as much attention as it's going to have next year, it would not surprise me to kind of ride those coattails. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, is that Persona 5 might create enough of a wave that, that Anaplex might be incentivized yeah. to put these out over here, at least in like a small way, you know? Yes. Um, yeah, Crunchyroll, again, as you say, doesn't do movies much, but they've done enough other Persona stuff that yeah. maybe that's the way to do it. But who knows? I will say, you know, once again, we review the packaging on these. It's pretty much what you got with the other... Uh, three movies, which means you get a really nice outer box which a, with an image on the front that will probably make you cry if you've played the game. Yeah. And then um, you've got the disc tray thing, which has also got really beautiful artwork as always. And then it's got the Blu-ray and the soundtrack. Once again, a great soundtrack. This one actually consists mostly of the new music in this is vocal insert songs, yeah. which are really cool and I'm glad to have. And then a couple little arrangements. But this one sort of for very clear thematic reasons, uses a lot of music from throughout the game and the rest of the movie series. Yeah. Um, you've got your normal art booklet, although it is longer than the other ones, and it's got a lot of cool stuff in it. It's got the lyrics to the songs. It's got storyboards and stuff. So that's nice. You get the translation booklet with this version, and then you get the lobby cards, which are the different posters and stuff. Yeah, and you um, get a reader theater script all in Japanese. So if you can read Japanese... I guess you could use this, but it, yes. has, it has music and sound effect insert, inserts in it as well. So if you want to put on the finale of Persona 3, the movie before, you could do it, I guess. Yes. You have all the music and sound effects. Yeah, so this little script booklet from what we assume is part of the movie, yeah. you know, the, the end of the film. And it's got some cool artwork in it by yeah. uh, Sojima. And so that's neat, uh, the, the Sojima, the character designer for Persona. Um, so you get that. That was a bonus. This was not, there was nothing like this in the other ones. And then normally they give you a little sticker set. This time they did something even cooler where instead of the sticker set, you get this little, it's like a, a heavy cardstock thing. And it's an original sketch by Shigenori Sojima of Makoto Yuki at the end of the film, basically. Yeah. And it is a really nice little thing that I might have to find a place to frame or something because it's really cool. So... Yes, these have been expensive Blu-ray releases. All told, I have spent $320 on this. That's I, a lot of money. You I could, could buy an Xbox One with that kind of money. I was going to say, yeah. Well, you could buy an Xbox One with any kind of money these yeah, days. That's true. <laughs> Fire They're sale on those. throwing them out of the back of the trucks at this point. Yes, but you could buy... You could pretty much buy a PS4 now, right? Yeah, yeah. If you there? found like a sale, I think yeah. like MSRP is like 350 at this point. Okay. So, yeah. Um, it was a lot. And I'm so happy to say at the end of this journey... In so much as any movie can be worth that kind of money, yeah. I do not have qualms about spending that kind of money. Yeah, and at least they give you this really nice packaging. Because they it's do. really nice packaging. If you are used to buying like Blu-rays and stuff over here... That suck? Yeah, like you don't have perspective on like the, the Japanese market as a collector's market, and they package the shit out of their stuff. Yeah, so you get the soundtracks. Sean, you were saying before we went on the air that... It's kind of sad we will not be regularly getting new Persona 3 soundtracks. <laughs> yeah. Or, like, with, unless they make a bunch more spin-off games, like, it's going to be... We're going to have to wait for the big releases to get more Megro music, you know? Yeah. So, because we've got Persona 5 coming up, but all the spin-offs, as you say, have pretty much come and gone for the moment, so... But it's been, a, it's been a golden age the last few years for Persona music. Yeah. But you know what? This will give me a chance to go back and actually listen to all of it. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> because I technically have listened to all of it, but there's so much new coming out, I don't get to go back and like re-listen to it. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. But let's go ahead and dive into the movie. Maybe I've been delaying it a little bit with these other chats because I'm not yeah. even sure where to start. But let's start at the beginning. It's a good okay. place to start. I mean, uh, this is one thing we noted with the f previous movie. The previous movie, number three, Falling Down. Great film, really interesting tone throughout in that it's actually one of the lighter movies sort of on the surface in that it's yeah. this kind of calm before the storm story. 
But of course, that gives way to this very heavy darkness. And it ends on a total cliffhanger. It ends sort of mid-scene, almost like one of these American part one, part two things. Yeah, like the desolation of Smaug. Yes, very much like that. So this one has to pick up there. But I think you see the method of their madness very quickly. This one starts on the, the Moonlight Bridge. And you have the scene with um, Ryoji becoming the... What's this? What's the harbinger of the death, harbinger basically. Of death yeah. basically. Giving the the exposition dump about Nyx and all yeah. that. And this big fight that happens. And everyone being basically imbued with existential terror. And I was pretty struck right off the bat by just how much they were pouring into this thing, in this yeah. film. Like, I think it sets a tone and a visual style that goes beyond even the, the previous three movies, pretty much from that first scene onwards. Yeah, because they also, they intercut the beginning and they make reference to it a couple of times throughout the movie of Yuki's parents dying on that bridge ten years ago, which are the events that, like, sort of spark off the story and, he, and like, the sort of power of the death shadow gets imbued in him and all of that stuff. So, like, them intercutting that stuff with the like similar events happening in the present time as they were happening 10 years ago is really striking and effective. And it's one of the areas where the movies by being movies, they're able to dramatize that stuff and like cut to it in a way that like the game wouldn't have been able to. And it makes the Yuki's past in his relationship with his, like they put emphasis on his mom and him like seeing his mom telling him to live and stuff like that. That's a really effective element of the movie that it's, the games don't quite have. It's so effective. And because in that first scene, you know she's saying something to him as she's dying. Yeah. And then she's able to smile. And I kind of knew exactly where they were going to go with it from once I saw that. And I was kind of hoping I was right. Yeah, yeah. And I was. Because what you find out over the course of the film is she says, Ikiru, she tells him to live. And then she smiles. And pretty much Makoto does that in the last frame of this film. Yeah. And again, that's such a perfect expansion of what is in the game because I think it's very easy to kind of compare this to like adapting a novel where a novel is a very particular kind of storytelling. I think Persona is very novelistic in its structure and yeah, its it's, style. They have like the... Because both novels and games are very long-form stories. Yes. Typically novels are. Like novels can be shorter. But movies are very short. Like... The long, like the longest movie you're likely to see is like a little bit over three hours long. Like obviously right. there are longer, but people don't watch the fucking the like the weird like six hour movies of like the Empire State Building just like static shot or something. But uh, but yeah, so the movie has to compress so much that a novel is able to just expand by having internal monologues and stuff with the characters all the time. Yeah, and they're very text heavy, and Persona, of course, is very it's it's based almost more on words a lot of the time than other things. Yeah, even though it, it gets to bring in atmosphere and visuals and music and stuff. But I just think of it in that way because this is the kind of expansion where you know Persona Three, the game, goes for a lot of sort of literal exposition and. You hear someone talk about Yuki's parents and what happened there. Yeah. And here they convey all of that in a couple of you know frames, a couple of shots. And, and it becomes this thread throughout the movie that I think allows you them to, in shorthand, add a lot of emotional impact that the game gets to give you just by virtue of being a game that you play for a long time and inhabit this character's life yeah. and all this stuff. But I thought it was a really, really smart thematic addition to kind of the, the text of this film yeah, to have just... that. And it's one of those things where it's such a strong way to open the movies. And one of the things that I was thinking about, like, in that sort of opening section was I was thinking about, like, the Desolation of Smaug kind of stuff and, like, the other part one, part two, Breaking Dawn, Harry Potter, like, all the that weird trend that has been up in Hollywood recently that seems like it's maybe kind of going away at this point because people have realized 
people don't fucking want to watch movies that way. Well, it's because the last few have flopped. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so, but these Persona Three movies, they do kind of feel like they have that structure, especially now that we've seen all of them. That I think, like, I feel like Persona Three, the movie number two, has more of a kind of traditional opening, but not much. Like, it's not the way that like the movie number one opens. Movie number three has even less of a traditional opening. That one also just sort of like starts, and this one very much like just starts in the way those part one, part two. Kind of movie I think the best example slash worst example is the Battle of the Five Armies. Yes. Where you're just mid-action sequence and it's an incoherent yeah. opening to that movie. But I think the thing that all of these movies do, and this one maybe even the best out of all of them, that set it apart is that each of these movies have such a distinctive style and, like, it, it, well, they're, they're clearly of the same movies. It's not like a completely different team took over, but it has a different sort of aesthetic to it generally. It has a different color scheme. It's going for something else. It has a different thematic core that it's trying to get at. And so each movie, while they do kind of start basically all of them other than the first one in Medias Rest with, like, action going on, with it just sort of picking up where the last movie left off, it's still it's it's carrying this new identity of what this movie is and not what those movies were, you know. And that's one of those things where this movie, by intercutting the flashbacks and all that stuff, it very clearly puts this best foot forward and has this distinctive identity. And then when it starts cutting to them in the snow and the color scheme becomes more white and shadows are very strong in this movie, that does so much to make it feel like it's not just part four of this story. It is a movie in its own right. And that's so important for movies in a way that, like, if it's a television episode or if it's a comic book issue or something, it's fine for it to just pick up where the last one left off. Movies are in that weird spot where they're not short stories, but they're not really long stories. And so you, it needs to be its own thing. Absolutely. And it, you know, I think it also helps, you know, it feels like the, the, the Nick's exposition and that whole scene is the beginning of this phase of the story. Yeah. So it makes sense to have it there. I felt a little disoriented in this one just because I didn't remember exactly what was conveyed at the end of movie three. Like, right. what did we already know? What did we have yet to learn? And of course, I know it all, but I'm kind of trying to put myself in a first-time viewer's mindset. Yeah. And so that was a little disorienting. But at the same time, when I think about it, you know, you're saying Persona 3, the movie number one, has the firm opening. But even that is supposed to be a disorienting opening. Yes, like, yeah. the way the game starts, the way the movie starts, it throws you in the deep end and just tells you to swim with it. And so I think it actually, just thematically, the way Persona 3, the game, tells stories opens you up to have movies that start in media stress yeah. and just disorient you. And I think they've done that very intelligently. Because what you were kind of hinting at earlier with movie 2, for instance, is movie 2 starts with a basically non-sequitur sequence, which is the... Shower hotel scene. Yeah, the love hotel. The love hotel scene from the game. And it's actually a very clever opening to that film because, again, it's throwing you in the deep end and asking you to just swim with it. Yeah. And I think they've tried to find a way for each of those. And so some of it is through plot segmentation, but some of that is just through, I think, that's how they want to start these, is in some way where you have to kind of. These have such an aggressive tone and atmosphere to them. Yeah. Not aggressive in that they're like loud and mean or anything, but just that there's so much of it and it is such sort of a. There's so much like of a, of a foreign atmosphere and color scheme to it that you have to settle into to kind of be in that world that I think throwing you in that way always helps. And this one is no exception to that. Um, and mixing it in with these flashbacks back and forth between the past 10 years ago with Yuki as a kid and Yuki as an adult. And these absolutely lyrical transitions that you can literally only do in animation where the yeah. moon becomes green and Tartarus just kind of rises from the depths of the earth and all these things. It really it reminds you of what you're watching. And to me, it was just like, I'm, I'm so glad we get to do this, even if it's one more time. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
So, all right, we have the whole Ryoji scene there. And then the movie jumps into what is easily the darkest part of any of these four films. Oh, God. The, the winter section of this movie is like, I turned to you at one point, I'm like, how did they make this actively sadder than the game? Yeah. Because they do in a weird way. Because the game has this, and you were talking about this earlier, this day-to-day grind to it. I don't mean grind in a bad way. I mean, it's a grind that the games are very aware of, which is you wake up, you go to school, you have your social links, all yeah. of that. And that sort of um, repetition is, is a part of the meat of those games. And so even though there is a lot of sadness in the December, January parts of Persona 3, the game, you also naturally just have things where you get to go out with your friends to a restaurant or something. And you get to have these little moments of levity. Yeah. And for a little while, at least, this movie strips all of that away. And I think it's actually very smart to just concentrate you in this absolute existential crisis all the characters are in where if you've forgotten some of the plot details of Persona 3 Nyx is coming it is the harbinger of the fall it will bring about the end of all life on earth and as Ryoji tells them there's absolutely nothing they can do to stop it the only choice they can make is to kill Ryoji and in so doing erase their memories of the dark hour and live in blissful ignorance Yeah. and so the way this movie chooses to illustrate that is not through adapting really any individual scenes from the game for a good half hour 40 minutes of this film yeah. it's just it's just emotions and atmosphere and the people being uh, the characters being sad and sort of slowly drifting apart and all trying to figure out what the hell they're supposed to do with this information and i think the most powerful stuff in this part of the film in part because it is so different than anything in the game is yukari who is also still dealing with the information about her father falls into basically just she becomes comatose in sadness and at one point, her persona, like, rips out of her body and attacks her, and she's sent to the hospital. And I think that's when I turned to you, and I'm yeah, like, what the hell are they, in a good way, what the heck have they done here? Because it's it's just gut-wrenching. Yeah, and, I mean, what they do is, is they kind of just, like, put a magnifying glass on all the different characters and what they're going through. And something that's, this movie stylistically is very different than the others in the sense that... The movie one, two, and three all felt like while well, you had the larger cast and the larger cast had a bunch of good moments, they felt like they were movies about Yuki and his character and how he was evolving. And this movie is like if you're looking at it almost like an essay structure or something like that. Movie number four is the conclusion, and it feels like it's not like Yuki. I mean, he has he has like a, a place he needs to get to, but it's more like he needs to get back to where he was. He needs to pull himself out of this sort of despair he's fallen back into. But for the majority of this movie, I feel like Yugi is who he is, you know. And he, when he reaches that state of like sort of Messiah enlightenment, you know, that's who he is. But the other characters don't have that path automatically sort of laid out to them because they haven't had the micro, the magnifying glass on them the whole time. And so this movie. It feels more like an ensemble piece to me in that it's like it's cutting and it's focusing on Yukari and what she's going through and it's focusing on Ken and what he's going through. And that stuff is not necessarily related to Yuki. Like they're very separated for the first half of this movie and they're dealing with their own issues. And they all have to come back to that point of acceptance and willing to fight that they were at for most of the other films. And within that, you get just this wonderful, incredible sense of visual storytelling in this movie where... I think that first, you know, basically half of the film, the stuff in winter, the existential dread, you could strip the sound out and it's a great silent film. It's Uh just this series of images that are so, in some ways, impressionistic, expressionistic, 
that are surreal at times. You know, there's a lot of just, in a very Japanese filmmaking tradition, just snow falling on a bench or snow out the window or the characters, but totally in relation to setting at all times. The characters subservient to setting and the setting being an expression of what is inside themselves. It's this great Japanese film uh, tradition that I think they're doing in animation here. And just throughout, like the way they use snow in this fucking movie it's just unbelievable. And there were t- there was a lot of this movie where I had to actively remind myself to glance down at the subtitles because it's almost like the dialogue, it's not bad or anything. It's just, it's almost secondary. You don't, yeah. you kind of get what's being conveyed even if you are not listening or don't understand the language. Like this is one I could almost recommend. Just, you could watch it raw, even if you don't speak Japanese. A lot of it would come across almost exactly as powerfully if you understood it. And that's yeah. completely a testament to the, the visual storytelling going on here. Yeah, it's something else that I found really striking in that first half is the way they use lighting in shadows, which is especially for like animation is even more impressive because you can't, you don't get lighting and shadows on accident in animation. It's all deliberate. And there's so much in that first half of them using sort of this uh, light scheme of the like sort of the sunset look. Well, the, you don't get like the beauty of the sunset. You just get this harsh slanted lighting of like rooms being heavily divided between this sort of gray and this harsh black and like people standing in rooms with long shadows stretching behind them because of the angle of the sun. And then they eventually, when it comes around to them sort of like finding themselves again, they kind of reverse that and almost play on it where it's still the long shadows, but instead of it being a sunset, it's the sunrise and dawn coming up and you would get the same angle but you, the feeling on it and the perspective on it is completely different. And there's just so much... Like, if you could watch these scenes and just, like, pause each frame and see what they do with how they play with what is light and what is dark, I feel like they convey so much visually with just that kind of information. Absolutely. There, and then, you know, the turning point of the film, we've kind of hinted at it a little bit here, is there's this... You're, you're just in the depths of darkness here. And then, very unexpectedly to me, because I just had no expectation they were going to do this, Elizabeth from the Velvet Room shows up while Makoto is having an existential wandering. Yeah, on on his sad bridge. On his sad bridge. And she's just there, and it becomes this adaptation of those scenes from the game where Elizabeth wants to leave the Velvet Room with you and basically go on these non These dates. Not necessarily... They are romantic dates, because if you remember in the game, it ends and you go back to Makoto's room and it is... As implied as those games imply that they have sex. Yes. And I'm sad that the, the, the sequence didn't end that way. I, I was kind of wondering if they would do that. I'm not sad in so much as it, this worked for the movie. Yeah, no, it would have been really silly, but this, yes. I was just thinking in the back of my head, man, that would be fucking ridiculous if they yes. did that. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are great scenes from the game, though. Those are yeah. some of my favorite moments in the whole video game. And this, by the way, is the scene where I most wished... I would love to see the dub of this at some point, mm-hmm. just because I love that actress who does Elizabeth. Yeah. And those scenes, like, what she's saying in the subtitles are so burned in my mind in, in the English dub yeah. that, not that I have any problem, the Japanese version yeah, is fantastic. Yeah, the Japanese version of Elizabeth is great. Her she's, voice is incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's all great. There's nothing wrong with it. But it was just like, that's where I was feeling those, those feelings. And basically, they use this long section where Elizabeth and Makoto do a lot of what they do in the games, yeah. minus the sexy times and stuff. Um... And they go on this this sort of quest together around the town, and they're although it's a little different because they're visiting basically all these dead end areas. Yeah, that the school is empty, and that the streets are just sort of empty. I mean, this is another thing we forgot to talk about that this game leans really heavily into the apathy syndrome stuff in a way that even the game really doesn't quite explore. Where there's just this little montage early in the film where 
everybody in Tatsumi Port Island on the streets is just starting to kind of fall asleep and be apathetic and just losing the will to live. And they illustrate it in a way that makes you think that it feels apocalyptic in a very intimate sense. Yeah, because it's not, it's not apocalyptic in the traditional way of just like, oh, everyone's dying or like it's zombies and that kind of shit. And it's not burning like, like nuclear explosion. It's just everyone's giving up and slowly collapsing on the street. Yes. And so by the time you get to the Elizabeth scene, the, the town, the city looks like a ghost town almost. Yeah. There's, it's so devoid of life. Winter has overtaken everything. They're using these sort of simple um, season-based metaphors in a very powerful visual way. But throughout the Elizabeth sequence, by being with Elizabeth and by kind of her drawing these things out in Makoto and then what's happening with the other characters, sunlight starts to break through. As you say, this is the sunrise sequence. People kind of start rediscovering their reason to live. And I was keeping an eye on a clock because you had like an Xfinity box beneath your TV. And so I could kind of see the time. The sequence from, I think, when Elizabeth enters to the end of that long extended sequence, it's almost 20 minutes. It's mm-hmm. a huge stretch of the film, and yet it feels both very short and kind of timeless, like it could just go on forever, because it is, as you say, it's, it's, this is the best scene in maybe all four movies to me, because it's putting the, mic, the, the magnifying glass is on Makoto, he is the center of the scene, and yet every other character gets it on them as well, and literally the sun shines on every single one of them leading to the end of that sequence, and it is just, I was speechless throughout that, it's yeah. incredible, and again, the way they use what are some very silly, fun scenes from the game, and turn it into the emotional turning point of the last movie, is such a smart, ingenious thing to do and then done with this incredible level of artistry. Yeah, because in the game, those scenes are spread out throughout the game. and They're completely optional. Like, you could play the game and never find them and then never engage with them if you wanted to. And so you have to, to take them out of their where they are in the game and just put them in the end here and kind of string them all together. And then also to do why I liked where they sort of drew a comparison between Makoto and Elizabeth because she has, you know, she's this sort of like weird ethereal being that doesn't have life she doesn't have she doesn't have like they show very deliberately that she doesn't cast a shadow she doesn't exist in a way that that we understand and can't make connections with people and she can't have these experiences and so it feels like instead of it just like being this like series of very fun scenes that like give you information about her character and stuff in the games here it feels very poignant as a reflection on Makoto and what he needs to realize he gained and doesn't want to lose because she's never had that and can't have that kind of life it's a great summation of what the four movies are yeah. and the arc that they have traced and where they've, you know, and when I, when we talk about like the games almost being, or the films almost being like an essay on the games, yeah, yeah. that's in the character of Makoto in that this is a character who was a vessel in the game and is now has to be an active character at the center of the story in this one, in the, in the movies. And his whole arc, as we've talked about many times on these podcasts, is a guy who is basically dead inside when you meet him. And I mean, re- if, the, if the plot revelation in this movie is he was literally dead inside. Yes, he had death inside him, yeah. living inside him. And by meeting these people and by having these experiences and by having these friends, he becomes something else. And so, of course, he's not going to kill Ryoji. Of course, he's not going to erase his memories. And without speaking, all of the characters get to that same revelation and realize they want the same thing. Because what they want is not to forget each other. Yeah. And that is the theme of this section of the game, but it's arrived at in such a different way in the game where you kind of have to put that into it and it asks you to kind of read all of that into the text because it is a game and that's what a game should invite you to do, I think. But the movie has to do it a little differently and I think doing it through the Elizabeth scenes 
summing it up so artistically, having those absolutely gorgeous shots, like you mentioned, the one with you see Elizabeth and Makoto standing by the fountain, and then it pans down to the pool and only Makoto casts a shadow. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and then, like, when the sun breaks through and it shines on, like, whatever is important to that character in the moment where it's, like... It, the one that really got me is Ken, where the sun, like the sun, breaks through the window, and the curtains are in such a way that the beam hits Shinji in a picture who yes. died in movie two. It's just like, oh fuck! Like, well, that's, that, that's a gut punch right there, buddy. It, it's incredible, and, and that scene is also an extension of something kind of before the Elizabeth section starts, where Koromaru brings Ken his bowl, and it's like basically asking Koromaru the dog asks Ken to fill the bowl like Shinji used to and Ken is not mad at Koromaru he's mad at himself and at the world and he's saying no I'm not going to do that Shinji's gone there's no reason for me to do any of this and and then the way the light shines through and making you realize oh right they built Shinji and Ken out in a way in these films that they were never developed in the game and Koromaru to an extent too honestly because the way they can animate Koromaru in this I think makes him an even more interesting and awesome character. Yeah, it gives him more of a presence in the scene because these can be more lively and it's not this sort of like PS2 cheaty character model, you know? Exactly. Uh, So, boy, did that, all of that just hit me in the gut. Yeah, then plus then like the music in that section where they use a sort of redone version of the Memories of You song, which was the ending credits theme from the game. Like that, combined with I Also Love... Um, when the scene starts and it's Yuki on the bridge and he's looking out of the bridge and he sort of is trying imagining this like the future of like if he kills Ryoji and all that kind of stuff and him thinking like oh like it'll be perfect because we'll forget all this bad stuff and we'll just be friends even though that's not how if you've seen the bad ending of the game that's not how it would have worked out but then I love the, what they do with the music where it, it's one of the many sections in this movie where it goes for more sort of like abstract weird imagery where like his sort of vision starts going crazy and like the red warning signs on the bridge just sort of like starting crouching around the corner of his vision and then it's playing the memories of school song which is a the instrumentalized version of memories of you and then it just starts as someone who grew up learning how to play guitar on an electric guitar it starts playing that theme on like an electric guitar plugged into an amp that where like all the knobs on the amp were just turned up to 100 or like 110. Yes. You know, it's like it's something where when I was a kid and just messing around on a guitar, I did that a lot. It just like, it makes this just raw, fucking gross, nasty sound. And the, like the, that slowly taking over. It's, that was like a moment that really sort of struck, struck a chord with me, one might say, uh, that was just like, fuck. Like, because that's something where... Again, it's not like that literal scene never happens in the game. And these scenes, even if some of them have versions of them that are in the game, none of them happen like this in the game and have that kind of context. And that whole section is just like they're coming up with stuff to sort of illustrate what the game couldn't and didn't need to do because the game was doing it through a different means. You know, that was more appropriate to its medium. Absolutely. I I was really wondering going into this one, how would they handle the true ending, false ending thing? Because if you haven't played the game... I don't know why you're listening to this, but the whole thing is that in December you have this choice where you can either kill Ryoji and the game skips to March and you have this very depressing and disturbing ending where basically everyone's forgotten what's happened and they're all going to die soon. Yeah, they're all, everyone just blissfully walks off to the graduation ceremony. Nobody remembers anything about anyone else and they just go in there. And it's actually, it's basically like the very beginning of the true ending, but it just sort of cuts it's just, and you don't see, like, Nyx never comes down in that ending. It just cuts and it's game over. And you're like, 
oh, fuck. Yeah. I, it's, I need to go back and make the other choice. Exactly. And I actually do think, and we've talked about this before, when you play Persona 3, I think it's pretty important that you actually at least see that mm-hmm. and yeah. then rewind back. And, you know, reaccess your save and start again. Yeah, it almost feels like that is, like, the way the story is meant to be told. Like, you're supposed to... You're supposed to understand what the consequences of that choice really mean by experiencing it and then going back and fighting for so that that ending doesn't happen. Exactly. I mean, it's one of the many ways in which Persona 3 uses game mechanics to convey theme. Yeah. Which is that you have to have this false ending feel it. Just feel the emptiness and the emotional desolation of what you have kind of wrought by erasing your memories. And then you're able to go back and fight. And I was really kind of thinking, how... Could they, would they, should they do that in this movie? And what they choose to do is, as you said, it's a very strange scene. It's Makoto going into this kind of vision, dream, something like that, where he actually kills himself Mm -hmm. and Ryoji with him. And it's sort of using that imagery of the, the suicide gun to the head. And then it's all of them sort of together, happy, but it feels very false. Because, like, all the colors washed out and, like, the image is getting smaller and, like, it's all fuzzy and weird. And at one point, you know, it's literally evoking the picture postcard that is happy but not real. Yeah. And then, as you say, the use of the guitar there and the and just the, the way the music amps. Where at the, first you're going to... Distortion on it. You're almost going to look at your sound system and think, what, did something fuck up with my yeah. TV? Um, and it's like, it's just, it's something where you, like... So even in like heavy metal or like weird punk music, you so rarely hear something distort a guitar sound that far where it's just like, that was why it made me think about doing that when I was a kid because it's like, I haven't heard that in fucking years. Like that's just, it's the worst, just fucking most gross sound you can make. But it works so perfectly here. And then using that as our kind of jump into the Elizabeth section. Man, oh man, there is such artistic inspiration under the surface of this movie. I mean, just talking about the music, how easy would it have been for these four movies just to recycle the catalog of music from the game? Right, yeah. You could have done that, and the, and I think a lot of us wouldn't have even batted an eyelash. You would have said, yeah, the music's great. Why would you do anything with it? And it's not only that they wrote new music. It's not only that they rearranged songs from the game. It's that they have moments like that where someone had to be, whether it's Shoji Meguro or someone on his team, have to be sitting down, looking at the animation, thinking about what a scene needs, with the animators, frankly, because they're yeah. so closely tied, and probably just experimenting, having a guitar, having the amp, saying, what happens if we turn this shit up yeah. and try that out? And that's the kind of artistic inspiration that I don't think we were expecting to see in what could have been a very easy cash grab. Yeah, especially where it's like this, because this movie, more than the others, it feels like with the section of the game you have, you could do a more or less straight adaptation of the section of the game and come out with something decent. Like it would be, you know, it wouldn't be amazing. It would be nowhere near as good as the game version of it. But it, but like the way that the ending section of the December, January parts of the game are structured, you could do that more straight adaptation in a way that like the other movies have to take such a large swath of the game that there's there was no way to do a straight adaptation. Whereas this is like, you could have done that, but like... They, they made obviously the right choice by choosing like they do do that a lot more for the last half where that makes sense because it's a lot of the battle stuff but for that first half they just decide let's take what are these characters going through how do we show that in a movie instead of trying to show it in a game exactly 
so you have the, you know, the moment where uh, Makoto decides he's not going to kill Ryoji, and everyone is very sort of energized and happy in that decision. Yeah. And it's, it's really, again, talking about kind of the economy of filmmaking versus the game. One of the things we've praised endlessly with Persona 3 The Game is that you get the month of January, where mm-hmm. literally everything changes. You have different visuals in some sense. You have different music everywhere. Yeah. You have a newfound sort of sense of duty to everything you're doing, and the characters are... If not joyful, they are sort of happy and focused in their purpose. Yeah. Even if that purpose is going to end in their death, they are heading to that with purpose. And they do that sort of in just two little scenes here, which is when they're all kind of happy after Makoto makes his decision and Igis is initially upset. And then the next scene, which is Makoto visits Igis on the roof of the school, foreshadowing a very important yeah. scene. And they talk, and it's this beautiful little conversation. And again, I was wondering... I guess his social link in January is so crucial to what Persona 3 is. Yeah. Even though it wasn't in the vanilla version of the game, somehow. Whatever. Yeah, that's so weird. Yeah. But, yeah, um, that, that's for those wondering. It was added in fast and then kept in all the other versions. Um, and really, I was thinking, are they going to do a couple little snippets of that? What are they going to do? And what they do is this one scene that is not quoting really anything from those social links. Yeah. But instead does this original sort of back and forth, but kind of encompasses everything those were about. And it's at this point they introduce this little um, sort of thematic nugget that will blossom later about the sakura blossoms, the cherry blossoms in Japan. And that right now it's winter, so they are all dead. And they're kind of wondering, like, what's going to happen when this is all over? And, and they agree, Makoto and I guess, that they will meet when the, when the sakura blossom again. Yeah, and everyone else shows up. And everyone else shows up. And that's kind of how we kick off into the last act of the film. And they all decide, yeah, they're going to meet on graduation day. And they're not going to forget any of this. And it, it's a great scene on so many levels. Yeah. And I love that addition of the sort of thematic thread of the cherry blossoms. Because, you know, I've, I've written a lot about this in some of my, my theses that I did in college that, are, that were about Japanese films and animation and stuff. And how important these sakura blossoms are to Japanese yeah. culture, to Japanese art. And it's interesting because the games, that is a visual motif in the games, absolutely. Is they're on the yeah. school grounds, you see them in the end of the game. It's all over, like, the last cutscene in the game. Absolutely. But I like that they call it out here. That specifically, they use the word... Sakura, because when you hear that, that has such immense thematic resonance to the entire sort of Japanese perception of life and death. Yeah, and like of the seasons. Yes. And just how much, you know, to the Japanese culture having those clear symbols of the... Basically what it is is sakura trees last a very short amount of time, but in that short amount of time they are stunningly beautiful, and that is a metaphor for human existence on Earth. And it's something that, you know, you kind of live with in that country and becomes this, you know, the sakura festivals are a huge thing in Japan. Yeah, and it signifies the beginning of spring. Yeah, the beginning of spring and this new life. And to have that seeded throughout this film a little more explicitly, I think, is is a really smart choice from an adaptation standpoint. Yeah. And I think it's very interesting going back to the I guess side of things that like because it, it's the, the thing about the, what this movie did that surprises me the most is that it doesn't go for because for me like that's like the knockout of the park like yeah just use basically the the social links I guess scenes from the game and like those are so amazing and you could do them so well in the movie and I think they make the right choice in sort of not emphasizing I guess as much because again this movie feels like it has a more stronger sense of the cast as a whole even than maybe the game really does 
And so it uses, and what I think one of the things that they use very effectively is being able to animate, I guess, in such higher fidelity than the game was ever able to do. And her like outbreak and her like emotionality in that moment of the where she attacks Ryoji and then she runs away and her desperation and her sadness and her fear, like all of that is conveyed both through the voice acting, which is great, but then also just through the appearance of the character and how she moves and how she looks and how her face contorts and everything in a way that like obviously the game can't quite do. Like the game. Other than the handful of short animated cutscenes, have you have the sort of low polygon models that, that the PS2 could handle, and then you have the portrait sort of cutaways that come up with the dialogue, and those only have like a certain range and a certain number of them, and they did like they didn't create a whole range of them for I guess necessarily at the end of the game. So like they, I feel like they convey so much about I guess his character arc in such a short amount of time by just showing you like yeah, like of course she's basically human like of course she has emotions and feelings and you as a viewer have probably been aware of that for a while and now i guess needs to be aware of that and like sort of face up to that on her own i feel like they well like i it does make me miss that um sort of very concentrated and complex and like full rounded view on the i guess character the game already provides that and i think the movie being able to just sort of like get that in there and have that stand alongside the other characters who works really well for me. It is an interesting decision. I think it's worth talking about. And I'm not saying any of this is a criticism of the movie. It's just an observation, sort of. Yeah. And what I said before, if I don't think the ending is diluted, but I do think it's different. And what I mean by that in some part is that I guess as a character does not hit me as strongly in the movies as she did in the game. Yeah. And I think that's by design, as you say. She is in fewer scenes in these movies. She does not have the same kind of growing focus in the films she does in the game, where from the point she enters the games, she sort of becomes exponentially more important to the end. Yeah. And in this, it's really she's a member of an ensemble in the films from the time she enters. And so when you get to that final scene, even the way it's sort of on the rooftop, which we'll get to more, even the way it's sort of shot and framed and the, the specific choices they make in editing... In the game, that's Igus's scene on some level, and it's yeah. it's her and my, and her and yours basically because you are the character there, and she is the focus. And I think it really is about kind of imbuing those feelings in this dialogue between her, this robot sort of becoming human, and this dying person. And in the game, it's that with all the other stuff, and with you not knowing Igus sort of to the same degree. Mm-hmm. And I think it works, and I think they probably just realized at some point in production. You can't do the I guess they did in the games on film. Yeah. It's a kind of experience that you really can't replicate. And if you tried to, it would feel like a lesser version. Yeah, because you just, it, so much of it comes across from spending so much time with the character in the games that, like, the game being as long as it is allows you to do that a movie just can't. Yes. So, no, I think they find a smart way to do it where I think they get the thematic point of I guess across, but at the same time, sort of the thematic breadth of that scene is a little broader maybe in the movie yeah. and encompasses a little more of just the universe um, of the, of the films and, and of the story. So it works, but it is different. Like I think if you're, you know, like one of us who just considers, I guess one of the greatest fictional characters ever, yeah. this is not, I guess centric in the way I think the game is at points. And that's surprising, but it's surprising honestly in a good way, because as you say, the moments she's there matter so much yeah. And it ultimately hits the notes it needs to hit. And it allows the other cast to feel more full mm-hmm. at the end. And with, and like, it's not to say that they don't in the game, but it is something where we've noted across these movies that they managed to take some characters like Ken, Ken and Shinji and Yoji that are interesting and fun characters in the game, but are, don't, don't have like that whole presence that some of the other ones like Mitsuru have. 
and they they give them a lot more stuff to do in these movies and develop them a lot more. And I think that comes to a head in this movie where it's one of those things that makes this movie feel like it is this conclusion is that it has it takes all of these characters that they've managed to build up on the movies that focus on them more specifically and then bring them all together for this last thing and they all feel basically as important as one another exactly and here's I've been kind of trying to think about how I don't know if I'm conveying this exactly perfectly so here's kind of how I would break it down what I've always said about the ending of the game is that you being the character you can name Makoto whatever you want for the sake of argument I'll just call him Makoto here Um, but you are living that character's life you have lived it day in and day out for a year of the game's time by the point you get to that you know last day of of March and the graduation day, and you're in Agus's arms dying at the end of the game. And that scene, to me, my whole interpretation of it, it is about kind of the game gently teaching you how to accept death, because it's a scene where you as Makoto are dying, and I don't view the end of that game as sad. For whatever reason, I view it as very empowering, and to me it was incredibly cathartic when I found it, because it's a scene that kind of teaches you why not to fear death on some level, because Makoto can look in Igus's eyes and realize how much he has left her and how much he will live on inside of her. And in that way, Igus is humanized. And that's Igus's purpose in that game yeah. is to be the, the vessel through which we view death. And so that scene is at this perfect intersection of the one who is leaving and the one who is left behind. And that's what that's about. The movie goes in a different direction. I think yeah. the movie is about Makoto dying for something greater than himself. And it's Igus plus every other character and his relationships. And so the final shot of the movie is not on Igus saying farewell. It's on Makoto looking out at his friends and smiling because what better thing could he die for? Yeah. yeah. And that he was a guy who started as an embodiment of death. And he gets to this point where he gets to die and be happy about it and be filled with the emotion he never had. And so when I think about it and I verbalize it, I actually think the movie goes in subtly a very different thematic direction with that. And I'm so glad they do because I think all of that is in the game. And I think all of that stuff in the game is in the movie, but they each bring out a different resonance of it. Yeah. So Yeah, it's just something where, it's again, it's the thing where they managed to find a way to take like what the game was doing thematically and and figure a way to sort of get at the same ideas, but in a movie... But, like, by going at it through a different medium, it inherently sort of has different properties in it. It comes at it from a different angle. And that's one of the things that makes the adaptation really worthwhile. It's something that I know, like, both you and I can get really frustrated by is when you see an adaptation of something and it is just, like, beat for beat the thing it is trying to adapt it, whether it's a book or a comic book or whatever. And it's just like, why are you, why would, like, like the Watchmen movie has that problem in a lot of places of, like, what is the point of me watching this movie why wouldn't I just read the graphic novel if you're just going to do that scene 100% literally the exact same thing as though the comic book was your storyboard when it's like, I will just go read the comic book for that. If you're doing the movie version of it or you're doing a novelization of it or whatever you're doing, when you're adapting it into a new medium, you need to add stuff to it or take things from it to change it in such a way that it is now suited to the medium it is, it is becoming a part of. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe it sounds like we're skipping ahead a little bit here, and we are. And that's probably because the next section of the movie we would talk about is the the final battle with Tartarus, on Tartarus. 
And that is, in terms of staging, it's very different than the game. But in terms of the actual plot developments, it's pretty much the last few hours of the game. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't... I mean, is, there's no other way to do it. Because yes. it's like, it's the climactic confrontation. Like, they're not going to, like, change the plot. Yes. And I do think you look at it and I realized this is one of the parts that is probably most difficult to adapt, though. Because it's in... As many JRPGs end, it's almost like a boss rush. You've got several right, bosses yeah. to fight. You've got a lot to kind of get through at the end. And you can't just literally adapt that, of course, for a movie, or else it would feel like a walkthrough yeah, or a yeah, let's but play. You'd like throw like five hours onto the movie. It's, yes. it's like everyone's standing in a circle around Nick's and like using their moves, and then Nick's changes its like affiliation. You're like, okay, shit, no, like now you have to catch ice spells. But that's where I think the staging of the film comes into play because they basically find a way to give all the phases of that battle, which is getting up to the top of Tartarus, fighting the Strega people, and then fighting the new incarnation of Ryoji. All of that they do in one big montage, and it's pretty masterful on a stage. Yeah, it's a great, great action sequence. Like it's because they do. It helps a lot that they they stage it that way, where it's sort of three different battles all happening simultaneously that they cut between. Because I think if it was just the Nyx fight and everyone fighting Nyx, it would get dull. Because we've had so many fights in these movies where it's everyone fighting a big shadow thing. And mixing that up where you have the the team that is fighting all the different sort of small shadows. Like, that's a very different kind of fight. Them fighting Strega is a very different kind of fight. Because it's like this person versus person fight that has personas. And then you have the giant, epic, insane thing of Bakoto fighting Nyx. With, like, every single high-level persona in the game, which I love that they're just going through, like, uh, Odin and Siegfried and Sothis and, like, all these different fucking awesome personas. And I like them staging all of that paces the fight so well that it never feels exhausting in a way that you just get kind of bored of the action scenes in a way it would if they had just, like all stand in a circle around a Nyx and just cast big spells at it, you know? Or if they'd done all that sequentially. I mean, you very easily could do that as a... And that's what I was kind of imagining, like I said, this movie would be. Right. And instead, it's it's ten minutes of the movie. And I like that. And I think there are some pacing issues I have with this section of the film I'll talk about later. But overall, I think it works so beautifully to have the group segmented. Um, You know, some characters are on a lower level fighting all the shadows. Some characters are fighting Strega. And then at the top, you have Makoto alone against the Ryoji monster which is done with one of the most effective mixings of CGI and traditional animation I've ever seen. Yeah. It's something that has kind of dogged the modern anime industry in how much do you use CGI. Yeah, and how do you mix it? What elements do you make CGI and what elements don't you? Right, and I think for, for, in other anime movies we've talked about on this podcast, the new Dragon Ball Z movies have that. Not necessarily a problem, but it's an interesting thing where like in Battle of Gods, the fight with Beerus has a lot of CGI integration that I don't think is all that clean. Yeah. And then I think they figured it out a little bit more for Resurrection F. This one feels like it's got it very well figured out because yeah. they use it where they need to to give scale and a sense of something different than what you have seen so far. But also just the mixing in terms of color and, and just lighting and everything on the CGI and the hand-drawn elements is really breathtaking. Yeah. So you have all of that. Having it just be this one-on-one Makoto and the Ryoji monster, fantastic. Yeah, it's just, it's like, it's just a well-choreographed action sequence. It's, there's so much, like, it, it is something where I feel like I've kind of been hot and cold in some ways on the action in this movie. Where some of them I really like it and some of it doesn't work as well. Like, it's never bad, but it's never, but it's, sometimes it's not that great. And it's the same thing with the Persona 4 anime, where I feel like there's something about the personas fighting that is like it's hard to capture that element on screen and have that like 
work for a, like an interesting action sequence. And I think them having the Makoto changing his personas constantly and the Nick's like constantly chanting each of the different sort of like persona or arcana like taglines while he's like changing his form and doing the different tactics. That's something I want to talk about that, that, that as you say, he just start, is listing. If you play that boss fight in the game, it's like a 50 minute boss fight yeah. as he switches all the arcanas and he has a little tagline about each of the arcanas and, and that same line repeats over and over again where the arcana reveals all something yeah. in that. And, and so they do it all, but in like five minutes here and it becomes very, it, it conveys the intensity of that part of the game, but in a cinematic form. Yeah. So you're totally right about all that. And then I think on terms of the action, the smart thing they do here is that they have the personas. They don't shy away from the personas, but they put the characters as a physical element of the fight. Yeah. And that is something they did well in these other movies. We noted that back in the first film that, oh, in the Persona 4 anime, they never use their weapons. Yeah, they just but, stand around and summon like Izanagi and then bad shit happens. Right. And sometimes that can be really cool. And some episodes of that anime can feel a little dry because of that. Yeah. Um, but here, like overall, I agree there's some action sequences that are better than others. But overall, they work because they remember to have the characters as part of it. Yeah. And this fight sequence is the best version of that by far. I mean, there's two moments in particular for me. One where I guess just literally gets Jin's persona and like rips it off the ground and throws it at him. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh huh. And then where the the basically end of the Ryoji fight where Makoto his persona is like basically defeated and then he f- comes out of the sky with his sword and just yeah. impales the beast. It's incredible. Yeah. Now, I also really love when Akihiko punches the straight oh, like yeah. right in the fucking face. Like it's. Like that, they they just animate it so well. It's just satisfying. Like, yeah, just fucking kick that fucker's ass. Well, and it on a character level, all these beats work because, yeah. of course, having Akihiko just punch the shit out of that guy works. Given what he did to Shinji, yeah, yeah. So, very, very good stuff there. I mean, I was again, I, like, I was the Straga stuff. I was wondering how they were going to do in this last movie because I think it plays well in the game. But when you compress the story, like, I would kind of just leave that out, for instance, if I were summarizing it. Right. Right? But I think they work it in pretty naturally here, even though it's part of a larger montage. And, you know, those characters, for the films, their biggest stuff had already happened. Yeah, yeah. But, um, no, it works great. And then, yeah, when, when Nyx comes down from the moon, they it's basically like the version of that cut, the, the cutscene in the game, where, which is yeah. one of my favorite cutscenes in the game, the animated cutscenes. Um, but it's on a much, much bigger animated budget in this Yeah, this, film. this is where, like, this, the imagery becomes extremely surreal. And, like, these movies have had, like, with the Dark Hour stuff, they've always gone, like, for, like, surrealism and, like, weird angles. Because it's not even just that, like, the mood is, like, giant and green and the colors are strange. But, like, the way they film it is weird. Yes. And the angles they choose and how they cut, they, like, they're trying to disorient you in some ways and make you feel out of place and kind of uncomfortable and then yeah then when the moon it fucking explodes and it's nicks like that's where because it's something where it's like it doesn't because it was something where i was kind of thinking because it's always just one of those weird things is like is the moon literally like it like because what happens after this is the moon gone is this dragon ball all over again where you never know if the moon exists or doesn't exist anymore it's like and it's one of those things where it's not important like it doesn't like, you've entered such a surreal space that it's like, who knows what is literally happening anymore, whether these people are really here, like, whether they're really fighting the moon. Like, 
it's not important anymore. Like, they've gone through this, like, weird, almost, like, psychological space at some point. Oh, absolutely. And I think the highest praise I can lend this part of the game, which is where they're sort of having their final fight, and Makoto flies up to the moon. Yeah, he summons Messiah, the most powerful persona from the game. Yep, all of that stuff. That, the, the, the visuals in the film are like what I saw in my head when I played the game. Yeah. Because the game is suggestive. It's, and I think it's a strength of that game, absolutely. I would never want the like full-on HD remake of Persona 3. Right. I want it to look like it looks. Maybe we could put like the golden version of it, but I don't want any more than that. Because it is sort of nice that it lets it gives you the basic visuals and then lets your imagination fill in the rest. Yeah. But that game is, at the end, working on such a massive scale, it feels like it needs your imagination. And in the movie, they were able to let the artists and the animators just say, let your imaginations run fucking wild. And yeah, they it's go, like, if you crazy. have to go full 2001 A Space Odyssey, go full 2001 A Space Odyssey. Fuck it. They totally do. And, you know, they, they do a little change here where really what makes Makoto do his last action in the, in the, in the film is that the tower is being overrun with shadows. Everyone is being killed by these shadows. Yeah. And he just kind of breaks. And he's more alive than ever. And he has in this sort of surreal space imagery has a final conversation with Ryoji. Yeah, with all, like, the fucking, like, raindrops falling down with, like, the reflections reversed inside of them. Like, yes. Like, the, some of the industry in this movie gets fucking weird at some point. 2001 is a actually very apt comparison, yeah. I think, for that scene. Just some of the stuff that... I forget the name of the main character goes through at the end of 2001. Yeah, okay. uh, um, the main character's name in 2001 is not important. No, character is not important yeah, in no. 2001. So, yes, but you have all of that, and it's it's very beautiful. And it also reminded me that you know you can bring in the image of Ryoji at the end of this film. You really couldn't have done that the same way in the game because he's so much less of a character. Yeah. But he becomes this very important thematic image to these films, and I like that. And then, of course, how they... I love that they kept the egg imagery yeah, from the final yeah. boss fight, all of that. Because it's just... I God, I, it reminded me of how much I fucking love the end of Persona 3. It's so good. It's, uh, it's, it is the best ending to a video game. It's one of like, the best endings to anything. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, incredible stuff. Incredible sense of scale. If I have any complaints about this section, okay. and if I have to nitpick a little bit, I think... This last act of the film, like the last 30, 40 minutes, moves slightly too fast. I think they jump basically right into kind of the final battle with no... Right. Not even really giving you a sense of that they're going into it. You know that they're going to do it, but then they just kind of... And some of that is just that they change the time scale a little bit, and my knowledge of the game was fucking with me there. Yeah. Um, so maybe if I watched it again, it wouldn't bother me as much. But just like, you know, we basically get none of the month of January, and I don't know if I needed a little montage or something, just something to kind of pause and slow us down as we enter into that, something to kind of ramp us up, because we basically go from... Them on the roof deciding to meet at graduation day two, we're in full-on montage mode as we're storming Tartarus. Yeah. And I thought maybe I needed a little bit of a buffer there. Yeah, I had the same feeling, but I was also in the same place where I was like, I don't know if I'm feeling this because I've had different expectations specifically because I played the game and I was assuming they were going to do more stuff. Yeah. yeah, so I don't... And again, it's not something that ruins the movie in any way for me. I'm just noting that that was something yeah. that threw me off. And then, like, really what I felt I needed was the game, in addition to that scale on Tartarus, also does a little bit more to show 
that everyone is waking up in the dark hour, that yeah. like you have this kind of global scale to it where the entire city is awake and kind of watching the events unfolding in the sky. And sort of at the last possible minute, they do cut to that when Nix is coming down and they show a couple of people. I think a few more shots of that just to place us geographically. It's yeah. something that I think the game was very smart to do. And I would have appreciated just slightly more of that in the movie. But overall, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I basically have... I feel the same way as you do about yeah. that. Like, it's a small complaint. But yeah. There. And then I think the last... I think the, the final scene, once they've beaten Nyx and all that, which the way they do the imagery where they're all kind of floating in space... Yeah. God, that's gorgeous. Yeah, and like the way that ties in with him having gained the arcana of the universe and all yes. that stuff. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. I mean, that entire... We're not even talking about this, but the montage where... He is gaining the Arcana of the Universe. They're cutting between Igor in the Velvet Room yeah. and everyone down on Tartarus and Makoto there and flashbacks to Makoto's past and remembering his mom saying, live. Yeah. It's masterful. Yeah, and, and all the Igor stuff, like, that. in some ways that was the part that made me the saddest because it's knowing that that voice actor had passed away and they're using his voice clips from the game here and, the, like, finally they've, they've recast him. For Persona 5. The last time we're going to hear him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In, and, and the, but the dialogue that he has, which is his dialogue from the fucking game, is basically like, this is the, like, the last power I can give you. Like, this is the, like, you are the best guest I have ever had. And it's like, Jesus Christ. And I think they're conscious of it. I, yeah, I mean, they have to be, but it's also, it feels like it's like they're conscious of it, but it's also a huge coincidence that that yes. dialogue is exactly like that in the last time they're going to use his, his voice. Yeah. Yeah, I know it was really sad because then I think it adds an extra layer of just poignancy to this story that you have a an actor speaking to us from beyond the grave for this part of the game. Yeah. And it just... Igor is kind of always... This this Igor, Persona 3-4 Igor, is going to be sort of mythical for that reason, I think, forever because of how much franchise media came out after that actor died that still sort of used his voice. Yeah. And now, of course, with Persona 5, they're finally going to move on. But it's bittersweet. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. So... But great stuff there. That montage is the kind of thing that animation can theoretically do even better than live action, but so rarely does because I think it takes a level of forethought and concentration to figure out how the hell you're going to arrange something like that, let yeah. alone animate it. So it's it's just mind-blowing on that level. And then, you know, once all of the, the stuff on the tower is, the climax of the game is done in the film... You cut to basically their version of the ending, which is the stuff in March. Yeah. And they do it all basically in one scene. And I don't have a problem with that. It was another moment there where I would have liked a slight buffer where maybe we just get a little bit of sense of daily life um, because it's something that moves you a lot, I think, in the game. But a lot of that in the game also is wrapping up social link stuff, I guess. Yeah, it's um, something where it's like, it's one of those things where you have to realize there's a lot of stuff that the ending of the game does that the movie just can't do. Exactly. And, and so, like, it has to, to go another way. Because, obviously, like, you can't... The movie can't build up all the different social links that Makazu had because a huge part of the ending of the game is going to school and going to see everyone you, you met and everyone you made friends with and you as the player realizing slowly with all the messages you're getting, like, oh, yeah, no, like, when I spent my exact health point value on that spell in the last fight... That meant that this character is dying now, and so you're giving your sort of like last regards to all the characters. Like exactly, that. but that's my only question: is is that conveyed strongly enough in the film version? Because I think so. At, at, I just wonder if there if we could have started the scene in the dormitory with him starting to feel sick, and it's seated a little earlier. Because by the time we start getting the visuals where he's clearly on his last legs, we're in full on ending montage mode. Yeah. And I just think it, it relies maybe slightly too much on our knowledge of the game instead of trying to build it for itself. 
that being said, those last seven minutes are beautiful. Yeah. Every moment is great. I think the way they animate it is perfect. Uh, just the general build to it. It is this beautiful, basically extended seven-minute final montage getting us to that point on the roof where things end. And, you know, when it cuts to white, it fades to white, and the title comes up, for which they the other three movies don't do. So yeah. This is special. They wait to give the title at the end. It, it hits you full on. Are there little things I might have done differently? Sure. Does that matter in the end? Not really. Yeah, because I think what helps it for me is that I do kind of agree that you could have done more with sort of setting it up a bit with the way that, like, the game does. Because the game really takes its time with that sort of epilogue part. But but the, the thing that the movie has is, I think, it, it allows the focus on the other characters again, like the other, like, Mitsuru and everyone, and Yori, and just, like, the whole cast. It, it allows them to have sort of their moments as well in a way that, like... Is, is just different. Like, it's not better, it's not worse, but, like, it sort of just takes a different tack with the ending, and it, yeah. uh, it's not as entirely focused on Makoto's experience, you know? Absolutely. But, no, it's great. And uh, when they got to the roof scene, in terms of the framing, the animation, the colors, oh, my God, the colors. Yeah. And and Igus's performance, it's, I mean, it's word for word. It is the speech from the end of the game. Yeah. It reads a little differently here because it has to, but that's told, that's great to me that you yeah. get another view on it. But yeah, I'm uh, fighting back tears watching that. <laughs> yeah, and this is something where they take... It's, it's one of those things where like the whole visual style of these movies is so strong. By love, they take what is how the, the cutscenes in the game presents it of the, this sort of like really washed out, like bright white sort of encroaching around the edge of the scene. It's like taking up almost most of the frame and you've got almost like a weird like pinhole view of what's going on and like that, like the brightness of it is consuming the scene and that's the the inverse of how the aesthetic was at the beginning of the movie with like where it's most stark is when uh junpei is on the ground after he got like punched out by that one guy and like it's just this like small spotlight on him and the rest of the frame is completely black and it like i like it inverts that imagery it was using it earlier yeah so you know you have i guess giving the speech the friends are all running up to see makoto and he's fading away and the last shot it could not be more perfect. It's him looking over. You know he's going to smile, but he takes enough time to do it that it really hits you. Yeah. And his hair falls in a way where you see both eyes at the end. Yeah. God damn it. It really justifies keeping the crazy stylization in the first three and a half movies of you never seeing that one eye. Yeah, yeah. It justifies that as an artistic thing in the movies, which they could easily have just said, okay, we can, there's no way we can do that throughout all six hours of the film. Yeah. But they did it until that last moment. And then the hair parts, he smiles, we fade to white, Memories of You comes on, and I'm just thinking, they did it. These yeah. crazy bastards did it. Yeah. You, you the, like the nice credits on a white screen with black credits, which is, again, like that the inverted color yes. is great, and the film strip stuff going up is really cool. Yeah, it's a nice kind of alternate version of what the game does. Yeah. Yeah, then, then it uses the same version. Like, it's, it just says, like, fuck it, of course we're just going to use Memories of You. Like, we're just going to use that. We're going to use the version from the game. We're not going to do another credit song. Like, we, we did more insert songs for this movie than the other ones, so you get the soundtrack. Yes. But we're using Memories of You, goddammit. Oh, absolutely. If, if it had been anything else, that would have just been wrong. Yeah. You have to use it. So powerful and perfect. Um, you know, there is, they do a little post credit scene. Because all the other ones have one. Yeah. And, of course, they don't have a movie to advertise this time. 
So, although I was kind of wondering, are they going to announce something new maybe here? Mm-hmm. I felt like I probably would have heard about it yeah, <laughs> by no, now. You know. But um, instead, it's just it's it's the doors of the Velvet Room opening and Elizabeth walking out. Yeah. And I think it, you know, you we'll talk in a little bit about what that could suggest. I think it's a very nice just kind of palate cleansing final image. Yeah. So it works on that level, which is what it really needs to do. But as you say in, in the games, there's yeah, sort of, yeah, in Persona Four Arena and then uh, Persona Four Arena Ultimax, they. Elizabeth pops up in those stories around the fringes. I think she's also in episode, I guess, from Fest as well, in this capacity of her on this quest of she leaves the Velvet Room, which is why you have Margaret in Persona 4, because she's sort of trying to figure out how to save Yuki in some way and sort of like going on her journey to be her own person, you know? So that's like, obviously, like the movie doesn't convey that with that one image, but it's, it's a... It's a it's an effective sort of post credits Easter egg for someone who's played all the extra games and stuff and knows where that character goes afterwards and just sort of like tipping your hat to that because that's if if at some point in the future they decide to do more with a Persona three cast centric thing that would be the direction they would take it and I would assume it would have to be as Elizabeth finding something out and doing something yeah but I I would had happily watch more don't need any more just as with the game. Such a perfect damn ending yeah. to a pretty goddamn close to perfect film series. I, incredible. Yeah. They're, they are really good. I mean, we had said this on the podcast just to each other off the air many times while the, before these movies came out, while they were coming out. If they get to the ending and they capture an ounce of the power the game had there, we would consider these movies a success. Not only did they capture that ounce, they captured a whole lot more than that. Yeah. And I think that is when we say we were not expecting what we got with these movies. That's what we mean. Yeah. No, like they are so much better than in some ways they have any right to be. Like, it's, yes. It's something where, because I was talking to you about this while we were watching the credits, it's just like, do you expect something like this generally of this like sort of like franchise tie-in movie thing based on a video game, this anime movie you just expect that to be like this sort of very workmanlike standard. There's nothing super wrong with it, probably, but it's just like kind of paced a little awkwardly, and it's not framed in a super interesting way. It's just kind of a fun, like movie to watch one afternoon if you're a fan of the game, and that's all it is. And and I would have been fine with that. Like there are plenty of franchises where you have something like that, and it's like okay, sure, like, I will enjoy it because I am a fan of this thing, and then I'll probably never think about it again, whatever, that'll be my afternoon. But instead, you get this series of four movies that are just fucking incredible. Just regardless of the source material, regardless of how they work as adaptations, and we've talked a lot about how just incredible they are at adapting into material that is very difficult to adapt, but even just ignoring all of those sort of merits that require you to have this affection for the source material, just as animated films, they are remarkable in terms of the visuals, the editing, the pacing, the writing, and just the direction and the animation is in-fucking-credible. In and they never needed to do that, but they sure as shit did. Absolutely. I mean, I was thinking about this. I think this is just flat-out one of the most artistically significant things to come out of Japanese animation in the last few years. Yeah. And, and Japanese animation is constantly producing very good things, but in terms of, you know, film, this is... This is up there. This is head and shoulders above most of what you'll see in American animation and even in Japanese animation. This is, I think, a significant event in 
just world cinema for this stuff. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. Obviously, I have affection for the source material. But if anything, that affection was not going to carry me through these movies on its own, you know? Yeah. And it, it ultimately didn't. By the time, you know, I think movie one won us over. And we still had questions after that because it's only a quarter of the story. But I think once you get into movie two and you're really diving into it, there's a certain point where you're just saying, I'm watching these for these movies, yeah. not because I'm a fan of Persona 3 the game. Yeah, like I was telling you before we started recording this podcast that like now after we do this, I feel like I'm just obligated to look up the people that worked on these movies to like find out what they're going to do next because I want to follow them and like figure out like what like what are they doing? Like what other projects are they tackling? I hope like a lot of the creative team for these movies stay together as a team because these are so just unbelievable. And obviously like unless they do more persona stuff, you're not going to get stuff like the Shoji Meguro music and the character designs from Soasia and stuff like that. But like just as movies and as someone who is a big fan of animation as a medium like, these are incredible. Like, every choice they made in terms of how to frame a scene and edit the scene, they didn't, like, just make the easy choices on how to do that. And as someone who has watched a lot of anime, like, I have seen lots of anime that's just, like, does the normal, like, way you edit this scene, and this is how you shoot this kind of scene, and this is how they generally are done. They never make those choices. They always think, what is the interesting thing to do here? What is the most interesting way that we can convey what this scene is trying to convey? And they always nail it. Absolutely. I think one of our favorite parts of Persona 3 The Game are those animated cutscenes, yeah. which are these just beautiful, strange, abstract little snippets of scenes. But in total, how many minutes of that is there in the game? Probably like 10 minutes, if it's, not even that. Yeah, it's very. there's not a lot of that. And, of course, it's it's very good animation, but it's not up to the heights of what they would get to in Persona 4 The Golden or what it looks like we're getting in Persona 5 yeah. in terms of in-game animation. It was very artistically done, but obviously on a limited scale. And I think that's one of the things we were excited for in a movie adaptation is like, man, what if they were able to take that aesthetic and make movies out of it? Is that even possible? Can you sustain that over two hours, let alone six and they absolutely did that. I feel like yeah. that was the jumping off point, was that very unique animation style in those amazing cutscenes. And they found a way to make that work over six fucking hours, which is incredible to think about. Yeah, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work while also telling a version of this story that stands on its own. Yeah. And I think that's the next question we have to ask is I remember very distinctly when we reviewed the first movie, we said, this is really good. Do we think people who hadn't played the game could enjoy this? And I think after the first movie, we were saying, maybe, but probably not. Because yeah. it has all the Velvet Room stuff. There's a few things that are confusing. And we thought, well, we'll have to see more of the movies. At the end of all four movies, what would your verdict or thoughts on that be? Oh, absolutely. I think you could watch these movies and appreciate them fully without having played the game. Because... Like, while there are, like, if you have played the games, there are certain things that you will get and certain, like, background characters that you know, like, oh, that's that person from that social link, and this is, like, a small reference to that. There are certainly those things for people who are fans of the games to pick up on, but the core of the movies stand so much on their own, and they get across all the, info like, the practical plot information you need just fine, especially, like, when you have, like, movie one, two, three, and four like they don't they spread out the exposition well and they they sort of like streamline the plot well enough that you don't need the extraneous information from the games to like know what's going on and the movies are so strong on their own in sort of the material that they're presenting to you and the thematic arguments they're making that like if you are a fan of animation and you like this sort of like medium I think you should watch these movies they're just fantastic unequivocally yeah 
I, you know, it's like it's, it's an adaptation. It's I think we think it's a little different because it's a going from video game to movie. But now that we've seen the whole thing, it's like how I would uh, really recommend any movie I love based on a book I love or something. You know, right? Like the Harry Potter movie. That's what I was going to say. Have like it's something that I didn't read all the Harry Potter books, but I read like the first three and a little bit of the fourth one. And obviously, like those books are get really long. The movies can't show everything in those. From those books, but the good ones like Prisoner of Azkaban get the right shit and present you the right shit, and you don't need to know all the other stuff. Harry Potter was going to be my reference for this yeah. because I just I'm thinking those are books I love, but you know they are very long and episodic books, and the movies had to make just like the Persona Three movies, they don't get to do any of the social links, yeah. they don't get to do any of the the you know dungeon grinding or any of that. Just like the Harry Potter movies, don't get to do the classes, they don't get to do a lot of the day to day stuff. But with my favorite Harry Potter movies, I can very easily point to Prisoner of Azkaban's a good one, Order of the Phoenix, Half Blood Prince, any of these. I can say this is very different from the book. It is its own thing, but as someone who is a fan of this story, I could say, visit either medium, you are getting something I love as a fan of this thing. Yeah. And I think actually an adaptation that can kind of be a rare thing in some ways, because there are adaptations of things I like that are verbatim, like we talked about before, and I still wouldn't recommend it. You know, like with Watchmen, no, go read the book. Like, yeah, absolutely. The movie, I think, is worth seeing on an intellectual level to kind of see what choices were made. But it is in no way the version I would say, it's okay to watch either one. No, you have to read the book on that. And there's a lot like that. This is the rare kind of adaptation where I would say it sits on the shelf next to the game. I would totally recommend playing the game. But if you only have time to watch the movie or something like that, you would need to see it. It's phenomenal. But then now also, Jonathan, now that we've watched all these movies and they're so great and each one has gotten better than the last. Now we as individuals have to enter this weird world where... People are going to talk about, like, when are they going to finally make a good video game adaptation? And we'll be there being like, they fucking did it. They made an unbelievable video game adaptation, but nobody over here is ever going to pay attention to it. Yes. Because it's a weird anime adaptation of a weird JRPG that, even though Persona is becoming more popular, Persona 3 is a very cult game because that's the first one of the wave of Persona games that got popular over here. It's like, no one's going to pay attention to it. And now I'm going to feel like a fucking maniac when everyone's just listening like, what are the, like, Tomb Raider, I guess, was okay. It's like, the Persona 3 movies are so good, you have no idea. And not only that, but these are a phenomenal object lesson in how to do a video game adaptation. Exactly. Where the goal for these movies, I feel, was to make good movies. And the source material, it could have been a game, it could have been a book, it could have been a comic. The source material is irrelevant. They wanted to make a good movie. The source material happened to be a game. And, of course, that informs how you have to do your adaptation. But the end goal was to make a good movie. Yeah. And I feel like for every video game movie that has ever been made in the United States, in Hollywood, in anything like that... The goal is to make a video game movie. Yeah. And somehow that's a different thing. And people forget, no, you're making a movie. And it's this stigma attached to it, like, because it's, an, it's a newer form of media that has not been adapted all that much, that somehow that changes the rules. Yeah. Like, again, if you can adapt Harry Potter into a series of good movies, why can't you adapt games into good movies? Yeah. And now we have fucking proof. And yes, of course, animation makes it easier in this case, but it doesn't have to be animated. Yeah. You know, like, this had to be animated, but there are other games that don't have to be. There are plenty of games that could make great movies if people viewed it like any other kind of material to adapt something from. Yeah. The process of adaptation is the process to me. What you feed into one end does not change the goal of trying to make art. Yeah, you know? exactly. Whether it's X converted to Y or Z converted to Y, you're converting it to Y. 
Exactly. And I feel like now we have forevermore proof that it can be done. Yes. And, you know, there are other... Not just that it can be done, that it can be done spectacularly. Yes. And, of course, there are other things in Japanese animation where you have stuff like this, like Persona 4, the animation. Yeah. And that's a great little anime series. But I think if I had to describe the one difference between Persona 4, the animation, and Persona 3, the movie is that I would not necessarily recommend Persona 4 The Animation to someone who hasn't played the game. No, yeah, I wouldn't either. And and that does not necessarily take anything away from that series to me. I think that is its own special, fun little series. But it is made in a different way. That is not one that stands separate from that game. I think it stands in tandem with that game. This is its own work of art, its own towering accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. And that you could take what we both believe is the greatest game ever made, and turn it into some of the best animated movies we've ever seen. Yeah. And the Beyond... best video game adaptation into film ever made by, like, a country fucking mile. Yes. Like, I don't care if Assassin's Creed is, like, a 6 out of 10 movie. It will... That's... No. No. Uh, this is beyond anything we ever imagined when this project was announced. Yeah. No. Like... So far beyond. It's, it's so weird to think back to, like, when we had just played Persona 3 and heard they're making, like, these movies and being like, ah, eh, they'll probably be fine. Man. It's been a journey, though. Yeah. So this is our, our fifth Persona 3-centric podcast. Our last one, probably, as we said, for the foreseeable future. Might have... I'm in- still holding out for Persona 3, too. They're going to make it. They, they ended this movie with Elizabeth walking out the door. <laughs> it's happening. That was them signaling it. I know, I know, Jonathan. I mean, well, then let's go to that. If they did another Persona 3 movie or an OVA or something like that, there are obviously lots of things in the Persona Extended Universe they could draw upon. Yeah. What would you like to see if they continued this? I would love to see them do the episode, I guess, or the answer material from Persona 3 Fest, which is for those who haven't played that version of the game or never played that part of it, it's this epilogue that is set a couple of months. I think it's in May after the game ends. And... Like, a bunch of, like, everyone's sort of, like, leaving the dorm and everything, and sort of the, the group is kind of breaking down after Makoto's left, and they all have to deal with these issues of the fallout of the ending of Persona 3, and Igis becomes the main character, and then all this weird shit starts happening, and they're locked in the dorm, and they have to, like, do all this, like, they have to fight through, like, these corridors of time and all this shit. It gets a little really weird, and it's a, I really like um episode Igis. I know there are a lot of people that don't like it that much. I think it's the pace really awkwardly because there's a lot more combat versus story in terms of you're like doing the ratio in episode I guess like it's like probably like 80% combat 20% story as opposed to like the 50% combat 50% story or whatever for the base game but I think you could make a great great like another one of these movies out of that material that would be better than what the Persona 3 Fest actually has because it felt like it was bogged down by having like way more grinding than the other ones do. But there's a huge amount of material that's very interesting for the characters. Yukari in particular has a lot of really interesting character development in that that I like a lot. And it would, it's kind of a it would be a shame I think not to be able to explore where those characters are after Persona Three when you have this great team making these movies and that like material is waiting for you and you could do so much great stuff with it. I agree. And I have tried to play episode, I guess several times. I really can't get into it. I think the story and the animation is really cool, mm-hmm. but I don't love the grinding element of it. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to get into. I totally get that. And there's just, you know, there's just things about it that it's also tough for me that I kind of am automatically wary of any story that goes beyond the end of persona three, because I right. think that ending is, definite in ways that are important to be definite but 
knowing how deftly and intelligently they adapted the base game and how much I think the story of Episode Igus would work better as film than it would game. Yeah. I think that's a, that would be a slam dunk. Especially because you think of how well these movies did by those other characters. I would absolutely love to see that. And and just as yeah. a nice little epilogue. They could even, you know, persona through the movie epilogue. Just call it that. Because yeah, exactly. it's a weird, quirky Japanese title. Because it, it's also something where, like, the, one of the things that's very important about the answer is specifically in a world where these characters come back in Persona 4 Arena, in Persona 4 Arena Ultimax, is that, like, episode, the material that Episode Igus goes through with the, the, all the different cast members from Persona 3, like, is necessary material that they need to work through to be usable characters in anything in the future, because there's obviously, for them as in, like, the Persona 3 story is the Persona 3 story, but if you want to use those characters again, like, the events of the end of that game are so monumentally important to them that they need to unpack that as characters. Absolutely. And that's the material that episode I guess goes through that I like a lot. So that's why I'm saying where it's like, Especially if you if they have any plans to use these characters again for other movies set even later that's original material or another game or an animated series or whatever if they they plan to use those characters again I like really hope that they adapt the, the, that um, section into the movie because lots of people haven't played that part of the game and I think it could maybe redeem that in fandom's eyes in some yeah. ways if it were out there in a form that maybe better fit what it was trying to do exactly so. Because also, if you think the fucking animated cutscenes for Persona 3 are, like, weird and surreal, the fucking animated cutscenes in Episode I guess are fucking weird. They are great. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't played the whole thing, but I've seen enough to... Yeah, there's a couple of them that are, like, really striking. Yeah. So, I would love to see that. I'd love more more excuses to talk about Persona 3, but if this is it, man, it's more than we ever deserved on some level. Yeah, man. Like... It, I am so, so happy they decided to make these movies, you know, like it, it's such a fun way to sort of be able to re-experience the game and these characters without having to waste, like, not waste, but to just like destroy my life on another whole playthrough <laughs> Persona 3. Yes. Hopefully this team stays together, does something else like this, because, man, like, we as people deserve more movies like this, you know? Absolutely. Memento Mori, remember, we're gonna fucking die. <laughs>